Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am joined today by someone who I'm so excited to talk to because she has seen it all. Jenny Jackson is a vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, a graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course. She lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family, and Pineapple Street is her first novel. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It is so funny to be on this end of things. I have a lot of questions for you about that. You've edited some of my all-time favorite books, authors, and I'm sure in that process, you've done a lot of writing as an editor. You don't have to tell me about that. But how do you know how did you know it was time to to be an author? I didn't. And it was not in my five-year plan. It wasn't in my 10-year plan. It wasn't in the plans. But I found myself at home, you know, in remote work and nobody was going to parties and nobody was going to dinner. And I missed my friends and I missed being out and I missed my writers and I missed my colleagues and I missed lunches and gossip and parties and fun. And Mm -hmm. I just started writing as a way to do that. And I just sent my characters to parties and I let them gossip about each other. And it was really, I mean, I wrote for myself. And then at some point I realized like, oh yeah, okay, this is actually, you know what? It's, this is the weirdest part of it, Maris, is that it wasn't so much like, oh, this is a book. It was like, if I don't share this with the world, I'm going to be sad. Like it was actually a, a really dramatic, weird thing. You had to do it. I love that answer. So much better than saying like, well, I've studied the bestseller list for decades. Yes. I've come up with. (laughs) (laughs) I sprinkled in a little bit of family drama, a Uh little bit of, yeah, I mean, (laughs) probably on some level, but honestly, I wrote the book that I wanted to be living inside. I love that. And so let's talk about Brooklyn Heights. I've told you that I used to live at 131 Jeralaman Street, which is a whole other world to the one that you are writing about in this book. It seems like it's kind of like places in Manhattan where there are great pockets of wealth that feel like small towns, but they're surrounded by regular people. Yes. And I think, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest, I think one of the things that I've learned from Kevin Kwan and his Crazy Rich Asians books, which he, you know, set in Singapore and then Shanghai and, you know, is that you, when you write about a place, you don't have to be super faithful to the place. You don't have to follow it to the letter. You can pump up the volume and make a place a character. And so, you know, of course, like Brooklyn Heights is not all rich people, not by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Like when I go grocery shopping on Tuesday at Gristini's where PS, I use my mom's senior citizen discount because amazing. why not? No, the grocery store is full of normal people. On the other hand, it is true that Brooklyn Heights is packed with celebrities. And, you know, the other week I was invited to bring my kids to a play date and they were like, garden level. And I was like, great. So, you know, I go in through the garden level door and I walk in and I'm like, oh, like you just use the garden level doorway. You you own half this building. Oh, there's an upstairs. And then there's an upstairs to the upstairs. Oh, okay. So like there there's a lot of that in Brooklyn Heights, but Brooklyn Heights, like the rest of New York is just a total mishmash of people all living four inches away from each other. And although you made Brooklyn Heights a little bit enhanced, let's say, for the book, 
there were so many shout outs to places that I know and love. Like I, you have a character who goes out in the neighborhood quite a bit and been to all those wonderful places. Yes, she does. She finds herself at Long Island Bar. It opens at Joe Coffee, which is the building I was living in when I was writing the book. I lived above Joe Coffee. Very nice. Fancy. She has a friend who hooks up with a bartender at Clover Club. And they can't ever go there again. God, what a rookie mistake. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a classy place, too. Um, there, were, there are a lot of things pulled from reality. I will also say that, you know, <laughs> the the school auction is not far away from a school auction I attended. Hilariously, I went to a fundraiser for one of my kids' schools recently, and they had like, you know, one of those raffle things where they have a bunch of different buckets and you buy tickets and each bucket, you know, a different thing. The things they were raffling were so funny. They had one that was a child-sized Tesla, like a red Tesla that a child wow. could drive around. Which I totally put tickets in for because I was like, I don't know where I'm going to keep this, but it would be awesome. (laughs) And they had a golf tournament that you could play at the Maidstone in the Hamptons where I've never been, but I heard that you aren't even allowed to step on their tennis court if your white sock has a stripe on it. And all the like, you know, parents were like throwing their tickets into that jar. And then there was one that was for a Botox party where a dermatologist (gasps) would like come to your house and give you and your friends Botox. And I was like, how scandalous. And then I threw so many tickets in that jar, but I didn't win it. <laughs> that's that's so wild. And that's very similar to in, in the book, of course, the hot prize is being able to go to the private island. <laughs> yes. And, and I feel like there are so many things that you write about Brooklyn Heights that I don't know about that aren't familiar to me at all. And I love learning about this stuff. Like, I I don't know if I knew that there is a tennis club on Montague Street. <laughs> there is. And I wish I could give even more detail. But unfortunately, I'm not a member. And if I applied to be, I would have to wait several years because there is a really long waiting list to even get in there. Amazing. And, and you know, there are all of these clubs and you know, whether they're golf or <laughs> I, that that in the times about how you went to a lunch which one was the colony club the colony club <laughs> i think i've been there once and it you were wearing your nice jeans and you weren't they were black jeans i always thought black jeans like didn't count as jeans in, in the world of private clubs black jeans are jeans the no denim thing i think is so hilarious because honestly like what era is it where denim is like the cheap thing farmers wear? Like, I think, I think really <laughs> since like what the seventies denim has been actually pretty expensive and cool. So I, I, I mean, I feel like there are a few of these rules that don't quite track with, with our era. And, and so, yeah, you're really like Sasha as a stand-in kind of for the readers, the main character is sort of a cultural anthropologist for us, like explaining so many ways of being that we just don't understand, like the world of old money. Yes. And that's why, I mean, I start with Sasha in the book and that's why I love Sasha as a character is because you know that thing where you walk into someone's house and you can smell if they've been baking cookies or, you know, if they just cleaned with a lemon spray or if they like 
haven't taken out the diaper pail or whatever. It's like, but they in their house are so used to it. They don't know. Basically, Sasha is walking into this family and she is like, I smell something and it's money. You know, it's like the people <laughs> who live there just don't even know how absurd and privileged their life is. And so Sasha allowed me to explain everything and see it through fresh eyes before then bringing the reader to the inside. And the inside is kind of crowded with sh shit and uh, it's maybe a little moldy. <laughs> yes, it completely. And some of that came from one of my close friends during the pandemic, her in-laws who had a brownstone in Brooklyn Heights moved to the country and were like, we're never coming back. You and your husband and your baby can just move into the brownstone. It's fine. We don't live there anymore. So she's like, oh my God, you're, are you giving us an apartment? Okay. So they moved in, but then nobody ever moved anything out. So just like in the book, she's like surrounded with her husband's family's stuff. And it it's just this like really great metaphor for trying to find room for yourself in a marriage and in your family by marriage. Yeah. Trying to fit in there sounds extra complicated. <laughs> even like we start with a, early on, there's a cocktail party where Sasha wears a white blouse to be festive and someone thinks she's a caterer. Yes. Again, I'm just, I mean, don't be friends with me if you have a lot of secrets because I'm just apparently going to put them in a book. This is from my work wife. My work wife went to a cocktail party hosted by her in-laws on Cape Cod and she didn't know what to wear. So she wore navy trousers and an elegant white blouse and all night long people kept handing her their dirty dishes and she was so mad. And and it's one of those things like I feel like I've heard this story before, but it's usually and this is like a very general thing to say, but a person of color amongst yeah. white people. And Sasha is just like completely separated just by class. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was kind of working through and playing with in this book because the oldest sister, Darlie, is married to Malcolm, who is Korean-American. He's second generation. But Malcolm and Darlie met at business school. They both worked in investment banking. He's been enormously successful. He makes a ton of money. Also, his father was a doctor. And so Malcolm, in some ways, fits in more easily in this family than Sasha does. And that's something that all the characters in their clumsy ways are trying to figure out. Is it is it that class is the most insurmountable for this particular constellation of people? Or why is it? Or is it personality? Or is it gender? Why is it that some people have an easier time, you know, plugging themselves into certain social strata while others don't? And for Malcolm, it really, it turns out to be a more complicated thing where then, you know, they go on to have to explore how much Malcolm's money and income actually meant to his place in the family. And that's a whole thorny mess on its own. But to me, it's just interesting to look at all these like different cultural signifiers of difference and figure out which puzzle pieces you can jam in more easily than others. And Sasha's background is really, she, she calls her family wild, which I relate to that a little bit. Oh yeah. We, we've definitely had like blood on the dance floor at some of my family weddings. Like, yes, we have fun. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in Sasha's family, 
eyes, she's the one who has made it, who fits in. Well, I think Sasha's family, in some ways, especially her brothers, sort of regard her as like a a fake or, you know, a kind of status social climber. And, and they don't like that about her. I think that they feel definitely like their brother-in-law is, is from a different world. And it's not a world that they're hungry to be part of. They actually find it sort of distasteful. And Sasha resents that distaste and it's kind of caused a wedge. So poor Sasha sort of feels like she's kind of neither here nor there anymore. Yeah, she she doesn't fit in no matter where she goes, except she goes to, I, I wanted to call it stitch and bed, but they're not yeah. stitching anything. A drink and drink draw. Drink and draw in Red Hook. Yes, I Sasha has her friends. Sasha's an artist. She now has a day job, so she's not just a full-time artist, but she has all, she went to art school and these are her art school friends and it's her escape down in Red Hook. And Red Hook, you know, comes to be meaningful to her later in the book is a place that's not Brooklyn Heights, but that's very close to Brooklyn Heights, but is much more of an artist community. And this is a world of people who would make no sense whatsoever to her in-laws, people who, you know, they're, they're doing naked figure drawing and they have this whole elaborate system devised for what happens when the nude model doesn't show up. You have to draw <laughs> straws and somebody else has to step in. And, and I think she takes special pleasure in knowing that she's part of a world that wouldn't make any sense to the Stockton family. Absolutely. And that, yeah, the posing nude thing is just absolutely not a big deal at all. I wish I felt that way. I've definitely (laughs) taken enough life drawing in college and it was still like such a big deal, but I think she's so cool. And and the reaction, of course, from her husband's family would be like a, a an actual pearl clutching kind of. Oh situation. yeah, I mean, nakedness is just like more frowned upon than denim. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, so is emotional honesty. And like, yeah. I feel like that's that's just from living in the culture. I understand that that is a wasp characteristic. Um, yeah. But it seems very foreign still. <laughs> well, and it's also generational, right? I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm really interested in is how our micro generations shape how we act. And so in this family, the parents are definitely the most repressed. And then mm-hmm. sort of the people my age, so the geriatric millennials on the cusp of, you know, Gen X are purposefully oblivious sometimes when it suits them. And then the youngest generation, so Georgiana, who is like the youngest millennial slash Gen Zer, she's the one who is kind of the most in touch with her feelings, the one who has the first moral reckoning and kind of drags everyone with her. And so I, on purpose, made this 10-year age gap between Mm. Georgiana and her older siblings. And I like, I mean, you should have seen me sitting there with like a pen and paper being like, okay, if she was born in this year, and then all right, so (laughs) it was like an, an accidental baby late in the marriage. But I wanted to do that because I just feel like I grew up with this really unexamined relationship towards money. You know, I grew up watching 90210 and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and MTV Cribs and and Clueless. And I thought, you know, my relationship with money was literally like 
oh, money seems cool. I would like to make some, you know? And then you look at the the people who are now sort of in their mid-late 20s and they grew up watching Occupy Wall Street and they grew up voting for Bernie and supporting AOC. And and, and also they grew up witnessing the income gap get larger and larger and, and to, larger. to a point where it's completely unsustainable. And so they have developed a much more active and questioning relationship with money. They they are the ones who are saying, "Hey, inherited wealth is is not is not just, and and we can't continue this way." You know, like I remember as a kid, people would be like, "Oh, him, he's independently wealthy." Now I look back and I'm like, "What did I think independently wealthy meant?" Like, <laughs> oh, you just like it, just like a suitcase of money appeared one day. No, like. It was well, given to you by your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents. Yeah. Like, no, this is generational wealth. Nobody's independently wealthy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, Georgiana has, let's call him a friend of friends, who she learns has is divesting himself of his great great inheritance from the weapon industry. <laughs> Yes, I know. A little on the nose. So Curtis McCoy, and I love Curtis McCoy. Curtis was really inspired by that New York Times article by Zoe Beery, The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism. This is a socially minded millennial heir who is set to inherit a vast fortune that is completely at odds with his moral center. And when he and Georgiana first cross paths, Georgiana has never thought about that in her entire life. And they have a pretty terrible run-in where she leaves thinking he is just a sanctimonious jerk and he leaves thinking she is a vapid party girl. And they're possibly both correct. And yet he keeps cropping up in her field of vision and and bit by bit by bit. And then very, very quickly, she realizes that while setting up a foundation, of course, is not like a, it doesn't solve all the problems that there are these rich kids who are choosing to do better things than party all day like Georgiana. And, and it's not, yeah, it's it, Curtis, I think in, in, in the, the fake styles piece on him. Yes. It acknowledges that, you know, philanthropy is not as noble as like, of course, when I was watching 90210 in the nineties, I was like, well, as long as they're giving back to the community, you know, <laughs> And, and and so we get to see Georgiana, how she starts out, which is going to a birthday party that's theme is oligarch chic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, we see her saying like, it's not bad. Maybe right. that's bad. Totally. Um, but of course, when when this group of particular people goes to this oligarch chic party, they actually have, like, they're not wearing H&M sunglasses trying to pretend that they're the real thing. No, no. She has borrowed her mother's Chanel sunglasses and a fur coat that's really hot and maybe a sparkly dress. That she's, They've gone all out. They own oligarch clothing, even if they aren't oligarchs. Yeah. Interesting, right? <laughs> right, because um... they're not. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course... Uh, a lot of the the Brooklyn Heights mythology, at least for me and to Georgiana too, is the idea that Truman Capote owned a place there and and wrote his 
most classic books there and threw his lavish parties and gave the place culture. Yes, this is this is a a, a myth that the <laughs> tour guides keep spreading all through the borough, 70 Willow Street, home of Truman Capote, where he wrote In Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then, you know, a decade ago, the founder of Rockstar Games, the maker of Grand Theft Auto, bought 70 Willow Street and asked to put in a swimming pool and to take off the front porch. And the neighborhood went crazy. (laughs) The pearl clutching again. How could you do this? But then further research showed this little yellow house actually wasn't yellow when Truman Capote lived there. And it actually didn't have the porch on the front originally. And you can put it in a swimming pool. Nobody can see that from the street. It's fine. So, and then the big reveal is that Truman Capote actually didn't even own the house. He just lived in the basement and borrowed it from a friend. So there are just all <laughs> these like, right, all of these myths jammed into 70 Willow Street. <laughs> so before I ask you more process questions, which I don't usually do, but for you, I am really fascinated. I'm wondering if all of these Gen Z children of the 1% are divesting. How do we get them to fund the arts, Jenny? <laughs> right? Seriously. Maybe this book will inspire them. No, shoot. This book will inspire them to do healthcare. Okay. Yeah, I'll take that. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> In terms of being an editor who has a debut novel out, I want to ask you about blurbs. I never ask about blurbs, but you have a killer, like, how many blurbs do you have? 10 people? I don't know. It's like an embarrassment of riches, like literally an embarrassment of riches. People are so, it was really generous and ridiculous and over the top. Tell me about like how you approached people and how it felt and like putting yourself out there as a writer. You know, it's so funny. So with some people like, you know, Kevin Kwan gave me a blurb and Kevin and I've worked together since Crazy Rich Asians and we are just genuinely friends. And this sounds crazy, but I just, I genuinely was like, oh, Kevin will like this book. He will think it's funny. He Mm -hmm, will enjoy mm -hmm. it. And so I asked him to read and blurb, but I didn't feel all that weird about it because like, I was like, he'll like this. He'll want to do it, you know, which is like, it sounds egotistical and crazy, but like, we're friends. I know what he likes to read. I knew he would like it. With some other people, like with Helen Fielding, Helen has been, you know, like the Bridget Jones books meant so much to me. I've reread them a thousand times. She was my idol forever. And then I got to edit her last two books. And it was like wildest dreams territory because at a picture editing Bridget Jones, that's what editing Helen Fielding is like. Like literally we were holed up in her hotel room in the Soho house. And all we would do all day was like, drink different caffeinated beverages surrounded by piles of clothing and makeup and like laugh and be hyper. It was like, I mean, it was the most fun thing ever, but because she is who she is, I was like terribly intimidated for her to read it. And so I just like a total pathetic creature asked her agent if she thought she might be open and her amazing agent asked Helen for me. And then Helen did it, but I didn't want to ask directly because I just, you don't ever want to put somebody on the spot and make them feel like they have to do it. For sure. And and so, Jenny, a hard-hitting question I have for you is why didn't you ask your author, Cormac McCarthy? Oh, right? I mean, I feel like he would have done it. (laughs) Can you imagine? First of all, he would be like, what is a blurb? (laughs) So tell me a little bit about 
the editing process, like you, you sell this book to Viking. What, if anything, felt familiar to you as an author? I mean, it's so hilarious because I genuinely, genuinely believed that I was going to be different. I genuinely was like, well, I've edited <laughs> 20 books and I know criticism. It's just about the work. It's not personal. Good thing I have thick skin and I'm above all of it. Ha, 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 ha. Because the day I got my editorial letter, it it had – so Pam Dorman, my American publisher, worked with Nicole Wynn Stanley, my Canadian publisher, and Venetia Butterfield, my British publisher. What happens sometimes, and I've been on the editor side of this, when you have multiple editors working together, you end up with a monster editorial letter. It landed in my inbox at 18 pages. Wow. So I printed it out. I skimmed it once. I put it down and I didn't look at it for two weeks. I It was like I my mind was – I was so troubled. I was like, well – it's awkward that I can't do any of these things they want me to. Like, I guess I'm just there. It's just not going to happen. I felt so intimidated. And also like, if you didn't like the book, why did you buy it? You know, like I was like <laughs> crazy. I felt crazy about it. And then also it's so funny because I know when I'm editing, I'm all the time putting, ha ha, love this. Like I'm a dork and I put hearts in the margins, not on Cormac, but other authors. And <laughs> and so I I was like, I know that's important, but it is pathetic how much their little ha-ha love this notes meant to me as I went because you really, you you know, you lose any sense of whether what you did is good or not. And so just having those little things in there when, you know, every other line they're saying like, this joke doesn't work. I don't believe this character. Why do you have this section here? You know, it, it's like a hard stuff. And then also really dumb, crazy, came to me so late. It's much easier to write a book in rotating third person point of view it's so hard to edit structurally a book that you've oh, written sure. in ABC, 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 because every time you move something, it throws off who knows what in other chapters. I mean, it was like, oh, I felt like it was a Rubik's Cube. I'm not sure I'm ever going to do that style again. It was really hard to edit. <laughs> Did you use any tools? Like I remember in the early off, coming into work and my boss had arranged a bunch of note cards on the floor and was kind of moving them around. And I was like, ah, you're taking them out. I'm holding in my hands the most outrageous stack of post-it notes. Yes. So I do like, I, yes, I wish that I was sophisticated enough to use an app because I know there are really good software programs that can help people do this. But instead I have like 12 like memo notebooks where I was constantly outlining, outlining. And then I broke the book into chapters, each chapter on a post-it note, just with three lines about the scenes in the chapters. Also, I don't know, maybe this is like embarrassing to admit, but if you were to look really closely at my book, this wouldn't be an enjoyable thing to do. So don't do it. But every chapter is actually really similar in terms of they're all about, every chapter is about 4,000 words broken into two scenes of about 2,000 words each. It didn't stay that way. And over time, some puffed up and some blah, blah, blah. But as I was writing, I found it incredibly helpful to just like decide what my what bite-sized chunks I was working with because I just felt like that was so manageable. And also there's something nice about having a consistent pace throughout a novel. But anyway, so basically every post-it note had what the two-byte chunks were. And then 
I would move them around, move them around. And then like at some point ended up with a huge chapter that was like unwieldy and way too long. And my editor was like, can't you just break it in two? And I'm like, no, they're both from the POV of the same character. I can't do that because I was the only one married to the structure, but I was. Anyway, yeah, complicated. <laughs> Very complicated. I, I, I And is there anything that felt very foreign in a way that you weren't expecting aside from the the feelings of being edited which i can understand must be crazy making you know i think that just the 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 thing that i touched on at the beginning of our conversation is was actually the most foreign and surprising thing to me and that was that I used to think that I understood why writers published. I used to think that writers mm. published because they wanted to be a writer, because they wanted to get paid, because they wanted to be famous, because they wanted, you know, success in a career. When I wrote this, the need to have people read it was so intense and integral. It felt like I wasn't done until people read it. I literally felt like I had a glass of water full to the brim and I'd walked halfway across the room. And if I didn't publish it, I was just going to be standing there with the glass of water forever, you know? And so the need to publish as part of the process is a total revelation to me, which is a hilarious thing to say after 20 years of being a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that though. That's kind of captures the magic. Yeah. Instead of asking you for your very favorite books of all time, which is normally what I do at the end of these episodes, I'm wondering if you can share some of the books that contain your favorite depictions of the 1%, because I assume that a lot of what you have written has been informed by what you've taken in. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely love The Nest by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. I don't know if she's exactly a 1% writer, but I think that Laurie Colwyn writes about an, mm -hmm. the, a, a slice of New York that only exists in New York. I also think like Claire Massoud with The Emperor's Children was writing about a very particular set of moneyed New York that was that had kind of permanently imprinted on me. And then weirdly, one book that influenced me so much writing this that's not about money exactly, but Nick Hornby's old book, How to Be Good, which is mm -hmm. about, you know, it's about a husband and a wife and one of them kind of falls under the thrall of a guru. But it's basically about, about the idea of goodness and how you can how you can find meaning in your life through, you know, the act of of goodness. And this is me kind of in some ways trying to write in dialogue with that book using money as a vehicle for thinking about goodness. I love that. Jenny, <laughs> thank you so much. Pineapple Street, out now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>